House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I am Al Warren. My co-host today is Mr. Eric Shapiro. Al, how are you? I'm always good. Oh, oh. good. That's fantastic. I'm, yeah, I'm, I offended myself by even asking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> you're one a big, a constant offense. Yeah, I know. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah tell me about it. Yeah, felony. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's it. yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Well, our, our guest is in a position to know also. Oh, she arrested yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or sooner or later. Yeah. Well, let's let's bring her on. Okay, we've got um, Angela Eureko Smith. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. It is such a thrill to be here with you guys. You, the, both the trouble and the non-trouble. Right, right. Well, don't, don't <laughs> overestimate Al either. He, he keeps me around so he looks like non-trouble. Uh-huh. Yeah. Scapegoat. Yeah. Handy scapegoat. Yeah. Right. That's exactly it. That's exactly Mr. it. Mr. Evil here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so Angela Eureka Smith, I encountered, and the re- uh, the reason we are friendly, in, a- in addition to the fact that I admire your work and talent so much, is we came together because I wrote a novel called Red Dennis that was published by Independent Legions in 2020, and at the beginning of that year, you were assigned by Alessandro Manzetti as the editor of that novel, mm-hmm. and you not only helped make it better and are a brilliant editor, but you also... Uh, intersected with me at a time where my confidence was not that high, and because you were such a believer in the book and you were such a resource for improving it, I came out of it just feeling really good about my writing and feeling very restored. So I was—I I always felt that you were an angel, and I included you in the acknowledgments. And I said, "This is a very special person." I know I'm not alone in the publishing community with that opinion. I know you—you uh, you recently, uh, by your peers, were given the Bram Stoker Award twice over. And you have a lot of new projects going on. So I want to talk all about it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, and yet, yeah, let me back up a little bit to the Red Dennis. That was right. such <laughs> a uh, a groundbreaking book. You, you oh, touched thank you so much. all the topics there that a lot of times were kind of being avoided at the time. And I had all respect. You did it well. Um, I just, yeah, when, when I got a, a little whiff of some lack of confidence, I was like, dude, n- no need. You've got okay. this. <laughs> So oh, you I, did it all yeah, yourself. It, it, it can cut either way because when you hear an editor is being assigned, you know, I took a deep breath. I'm like, if this person is not aligned to the experiment I'm embarking on, mm-hmm. this could get seriously sensitive. Like I've had with opinion editorials I've written in our newspaper. You know, when you get into politics, it can get so divisive and inflammatory. Oh, yeah. And I was just pray, praying for somebody that understood. And I remember uh, you came out of it saying, you didn't know where I was politically, which was the biggest compliment you could have mm-hmm. given me after reading that, because I didn't want it to be about ideology. I wanted it to be humanized and transcend all that stuff. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, that's what I thought was so good about it is it wasn't a political soapbox any other, like one way. It was just a moment in our history, kind of, you know, this is what it is. This is all the crap, you know. Wait, so you have... Um, first of all, you just won a couple of Stokers, so congratulations! Thank you. I don't. I, was it your first time winning? I know you've been a finalist before. But, yeah, it was um, actually my first time to get to take them home, so that was cool. And they are as awesome as. I mean, before I won one, I was like, "Yeah, it's really not about winning it." You know, that's that's cool, but really getting nominated is enough. But then after I won one, it was like, "No, these are freaking mine. Right. <laughs> this is an <the> awesome thing." <laughs> What what categories did you win in? 
uh, poetry collection, which was for Tortured Willows, which I wrote with Christina Singh, Lee Murray, and uh, Genevieve Flynn. And then these are all people. These are all people I think are fantastic. Yeah, I yeah, know. it was awesome. I mean, and Genevieve, that was her first poem, and it got nominated for oh. an Aurorealis Award. The first, her first poem went in that book, so I'm super proud of that. Because um, I, I, I coached her. I say coached her, but it was a very, you know, like, well, you could do this, and then she just kind of mm-hmm. ran with it. Um, and Lee was a newer poet at the time, and she just did phenomenal. She actually won the Aurorealis. Um, which is the Australian Awards, and we had, Tortured Willows had, I want to say like four of five of them as nominations, like four of our poems were nominated out of five, or it was six and we had five, something like that, but I was impressed, so... But yeah, cannot say enough good things about my my co-poets on that book. So what what is the theme with Tortured Willows? What is the unifying theme of all the poems? Oh, it was just us touching into our heritage, you know, wherever we stand with that, because we're all Asian or part Asian. And it was actually a follow on from Black Cranes. And I don't know if you remember that one. That came out the year before. Yeah, yeah. And that swept all the awards that got. Shirley Jackson and the Bram Stoker and anthology and Aurora's Aurora. I can't, I don't know. There's a ton of stuff. It was a ton of stuff and I can never keep them all straight. Um, so this oh, was, fantastic. yeah, this was our answer to that. We decided to continue the conversation, but in a different uh, category. And then next year we have a third book, which is nonfiction. It's basically our essays from different Asian voices and, and Asian women. We're trying to kind of keep the focus there, but in nonfiction, that's coming out from Black Spot Books on Valentine's Day. Oh, wow. Okay. So primarily it's been poetry. And if I'm getting this with Tortured Willows mm-hmm. and Black Cranes, you were the editor as well as the contributor, correct? Not for Black Cranes. And that was fiction. Okay, that okay. was just an anthology. Well, just an anthology. It was fiction. It was a fiction anthology. And so I okay. only had two stories in it. Um, but, okay. and Lee and I were friends, but we weren't like very close, like, you know, we weren't like we're now, we're kind of tied to the, tied at the hip. Um, so mm-hmm. she just asked me if I would contribute a story and then they wound up needing another one. So I gave them a reprint. Um, and so I had two, but it just, I loved the book so much. I love, and, and people often confuse me of actually being an editor of that. And I was not, oh, but God. I just was like a, you know, super fan girl, like, you know sharing it and pushing it however I could because I felt like it was such an important book. Who was it that edited that one? So we um, got that it. was Lee Murray and Genevieve Flynn. Yeah, and that's how oh, they so met. Yep. Got it. Okay, so, and with this next one, which is Essays, what is the title of that one coming up? Unquiet Spirits. And that, you're keeping the band together, so it's, it's the yeah, same group of you. It is, but okay. it's, I think there's like 19 of us, and I've, I've probably got oh, that okay. off, but it is a larger group. Um, we we just tried to get all the, the voices in, like the different experiences and stuff, because we didn't want it to be just our experience. The poetry obviously has to be a little more focused, uh, but this mm-hmm. is probably about 20 essays. If Lee hears this, she's going to be correcting me later because I'm sure I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but And we've got all sorts of, and it's uh, looking at the Asian woman experience through the lens of spirits monsters so my my essay in that is about the nakekubi which is a ghost that um, goes headless at night it's a person but your head Uh will pop off and go hunting basically at night kind of like a pseudo vampire headless kind of you know but then i tie that into the the strict uh you know when you have to be so um the word mundane is coming to my head but that's not the word Mm -hmm. you know like you can't sort of like 
But you're inhibited. Conservative, yeah, inhibited oh, and it. conservative. Okay. And you have these these pressures, these social pressures to behave in a certain way. And then that is my my thought is like the Nikekebi is maybe like we have to break out. And so maybe this is one way, you know, that lust for, you know, like maybe you're not really a violent person, but when you suppress everything, it over comes out, you know, it's bigger than maybe it would be in a normal way. So got it. Okay. That's a really powerful theme. Okay. So you, you just put so many things on the table to talk about, but I also <laughs> want to talk about what did the other, what was the other stoker win? Oh, that was year? short nonfiction. And so I did a little okay, piece okay. for uh, sirens call called horror writers, architects of hope. Okay. Yeah. And what was that about? Um, I went into, and you've probably read this study. They found out during the pandemic that horror writers and well, horror fans, we'll say horror fans, mm-hmm. not necessarily mm-hmm. literature, but people who loved horror were the most resilient in the pandemic mm-hmm. and through all the crises. We were the ones that had the best mental health, um, which was, I don't know why that's surprising. And they ha- got paid so much money because all of us could have just told them this, um, right. you know, and they're trying to figure out why. And they also found out it wasn't like a racial thing or it wasn't like all the, you know, Chinese horror fans or all the African-American horror fans. It was mm-hmm. just people that liked horror were more resilient and it, it wasn't a money thing. It wasn't a pol- political thing or a religious thing. It was just the, the common thread was liking horror. Well, to us, that makes total sense because we're role-playing our fears. That's why we write it or watch it mm. or are fascinated because we don't hide from our fears. We're not trying to suppress anything and be in the Kekubi. Um, we face it mm-hmm. and are plotting how to get rid of it or, or also just accepting that sometimes you don't. You know, sometimes the monster wins and... What, whatever, you know, you still have to go on and do your best. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's interesting because I did read the study, and as the pandemic has gone on, particularly in the post-lockdown phase, um, I did, like, as a teenager, I had mental health issues, or at least they were most flared up at that time in my life. Mm-hmm. And I always looked at it as, well, like, I already went through a sort of nervous breakdown period in my life. Now I'm in my 40s. So I, as the world started unraveling, even though it was disturbing and it was unnerving and jarring, there was a limit. Like, I didn't feel like it encroached upon my personal mental health very much. Mm -hmm. I also, like, work from home, so there are different variables. So, like, on that level, things didn't change. But I always attributed it to the past trauma. But I think what you're saying, and that's so brilliantly put in terms of role-playing our fears, is such a big component of all that as, as far as horror fans go. And Al is a true crime person, and that's very adjacent to horror. Like, it's mm-hmm. all about acknowledging, acknowledging bleakness and not shying away from it, as you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True crime is fascinating, too. I just went to Writers Police Academy this last weekend. Um, if my voice sounds tired, I'm, it's, it was that recent. I'm still kind of recovering. But that was really awesome to go see how police actually do it, because I kind of tended to be more into the the supernatural aspects of horror. And here we are talking about Jeffrey Dahmer and um, the BTK kill it, like all of that and seeing the crime photos, which, you know, as a horror writer is like, yes, this is awesome. That was really cool. I have a huge respect. Well, I will say I didn't like not have a respect, but I just had no understanding of that genre, really. So huge fan now. Wait, so when you say Writer's Police Academy, you were literally learning about, like, police work as oh, yeah. to write it? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was awesome. Okay. Um, we got to, like, take apart a car with the Jaws of Death. Uh, I'm sorry, Jaws of Life. <laughs> That's the horror writer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Typical horror. <laughs> yeah. You know what I was thinking about doing with them, but, yeah, but, no, yeah, yeah. actually to cut away a car, not, you know, kill people, but... 
Um, yeah, and see dog like how the police dogs work and how body cams work. That was really interesting, um, you know, because we kind of go, you know, well, why couldn't the guy see this person over there or whatever? You know, that guy had to gut us right there on the camera. But then when you see, like, the perspective, like, you can see it from different ways. They'd have, like, several cameras set up, and what you're seeing on the body cam isn't necessarily what happened. It is very, you know, there's a lot of interpretation there and stuff, which I didn't realize. I mean, that was really eye-opening. That is interesting, yeah. My wife was recently telling me how um, she had read something about how how um, unstable human memory is. Mm-hmm. Like, you often don't remember things correctly, and it's interesting in a body cam case where you're actually capturing and recording, and yet there's going to be insufficient context to get the whole story. Yeah, yeah. Like, they, yeah. they were pointing out that... Um, the body cam is much more sensitive than us and the body cam has no stress. So you are looking at a gun, maybe pointed at you or whatever, whatever the situation is. And somebody says something, but your brain is already engaged in like, I have to fire or, you know, flight or flight or fight or fright, whatever. (laughs) You know what I'm trying to say? I know it's not flight or fright, but you know, maybe that's how I write. (laughs) <laughs> you can be scared to death or you can flee. There's no other way. There's no other options. Right, right. Um, but then they were saying, like, the ear, though, doesn't hear that, doesn't register it. So even though maybe on a camera somebody's like, oh, it's okay, that's a comb. They, right. You're already engaged. And I got to be in a simulator where I actually got to take down an active shooter. I mean, simulation. It was a simulation. <laughs> um, and that that was, even though I know this is really, I'm not really being threatened here, um, the emotional state that I was, you know, because, of course, as a writer, that's what I'm focused on is how do I feel right now? Where Am I confused? Am I this? Am I that? And it was there was one moment where the police officer that was with me, um, who's a simulation, was like, you know, I'm going left. You go right or something. And I was totally mm-hmm. confused for a minute. Like, what is my left? What is my right? Oh, my God. What did he just say? Oh, like, wow. you know, like a holy. Oh, my. Let's go. You know, and then. The guy came in down the hall and I saw that he had a gun and I still I didn't react. And I'm looking for him. I'm looking for this shooter. And so, and there was also a guy to my left in a room. I just heard him shoot somebody. And so that's where my focus was as I'm coming down the hall is, OK, there's somebody to my left. Then this other guy pops out on my right down a hall. I see the gun. I don't react because it's it's just too fast. He goes into a room and shoots somebody as he come out. As he came out, I got him. I shot him. Um, and then because I was so focused on that, I forgot that there was a guy on the left. And then all of a sudden he popped out and then we got in this big shootout and it was ridiculous at that point because nobody was ever going to win until one of us ran out of bullets. But it was just to me like so shocking that mindset, because if I would tell you how it went, like what I thought would happen, you know, I'm definitely not going to be like, oh, yeah, because I'm a badass and, you know, I shoot people all the time or whatever. But I didn't realize like, how would I forget the guy on the left? Like, seriously, he's right there. Right. I just heard it. It's a gun. It's a gun. It's a guy shooting people, and I forgot he was there. So, uh, were the um, were the gunshots really, really loud in mm-hmm. the simulation? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's like bl- blowing your mind out. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. and luckily, I've never been in a situation like that. You know. So, but it was mm. like really eye opening, and I I actually had like a not like a conscience reevaluation but i was like wow am i like a really selfish person because i let the guy shoot somebody before i shot him like was i verifying that he was actually a threat so i wouldn't get in trouble like what what was my and i honestly think i just it was just too fast 
You know what I mean? Like, right, and I, I was wasn't. Say, yeah. yeah, but it was just all kinds of. And then there was another woman who got shot um, and didn't make it through hers. And I think like later that afternoon, I ran into her and she was still kind of like shaking and, you, you know, so it was like really emotional and um, valuable, like incredibly valuable. Wow. It sounds like a lot of adrenaline. Like you're just like blown out with adrenaline and yeah. just spur of the moment reactions. And wow. And then also, uh, it's just interesting that you would have that sort of, uh, I guess the best word is regret, even though it's a simulation. Like, yeah. Uh, if only I'd had a moment to rethink things and those sort of thoughts. Yeah. Um, very, like, brilliant idea for a boot camp for writers yeah. to give that perspective. That's amazing. It, mm. it but was. Were any of the guys in the simulation good looking? Um, <laughs> well, the one I shot, so that might be why I hesitated, that might honestly. Be why. See, this is, like, hmm. yeah. See, yeah. this is it. Yeah, there's the hesitation because he's too pretty to shoot. Yeah, and like right. maybe that would have been like a fantasy thing. Like he turns around yeah. and sees me and our eyes meet across all the corpses and he's like, oh my gosh, it's true love. And then, you know, we're like <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde yeah. off into the sunset. Exactly. <laughs> see, see, now we're discovering what's real. Yeah, see, but I don't know if it would have been a good relationship in the long run because he chose to hit a police station and I'm like, there's nothing mm. here to take with you. What are you going to take? Badges right. or them down? There is no, you are not a good supporter. <laughs> you yeah. need to pick a bank or something. <laughs> Quite questionable judgment. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, it's the worst idea ever. Who takes down a police station? You know, let's go hit a mall or something. At least get me some right. new shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, wait, so I want to talk about the two big topics mm -hmm. you brought up a few minutes ago are the Asian heritage theme. I want to talk about. I also want to talk about that monster with no head again, because mm -hmm. that was really fascinating. But uh, please speak to me about the experience of capturing your Asian heritage through uh, poetry and essays and what that meant and what you learned and all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. That's, I will say this book, Tortured Willows, was a pivot for me in my career. I thought I knew where I was going. And this book was probably the hardest thing I ever wrote. And absolutely changed my entire perspective and where I was going. And one reason why is because, I mean, I'm, I'm only 25% Shimanshu, which is Okinawan. But the Okinawan people are not Japanese, and that's like a misunderstanding. And Japan is actually illegally hope, holding Okinawa. And the Americans originally took it, and there's a lot of... A lot of politics and stuff I won't get into here, but these were all things I didn't realize. And you'd think that's my culture. You know, I would know these things. But the Shimanshu have tried to be Japanese for so long, a lot of the culture has just gotten washed out. The Japanese didn't like it, imperial. And I shouldn't say Japanese, you know, but like the imperialistic Japan, the government, mm -hmm. you know, not all the Japanese people who really don't care, <laughs> like, like us. Oh, you know? Japanese citizens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> just because we're American, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that we believe all these, you know, all the things right, are exactly. our things. That's not our baggage. Um, so as a, as a result, the Shimanshu, this generation, is trying to reclaim it all. I mean, the languages on the endangered uh, languages list, um, we've lost so much of our culture and, and just really important things. You know, and so not to go too far down that, because that this would be like a five hour show. Um, that's where it started with me with Tortured Willows. We were all going to write a little bit about our heritage, 15 poems, not a big deal. Um, and I kind of was like, oh, this will be easy. I'll write about my grandmother's feet being so tiny. And, mm -hmm. you know, I like rice and I eat seaweed, you know, done, mm -hmm. done 15 <laughs> poems. Um, and instead, 
I wound up doing this deep dive uh, into my family, my actual family, which we're not super close. Um, and I found out why, because of a lot of the things that I wrote about in Tortured Willows. But we were mediums in Okinawa. That was the family mm. job. And it's actually called Yuda. And it's not quite the same as what we think of as mediums, you know, which is like a, an old woman with the crystal ball and, the, you know, mm -hmm. speaking to the spirits. It's more about bringing balance. So when something is going off in your life that is disruptive or you're having really bad luck, it's probably a spirit, you know, maybe somebody in your ancestry is unhappy. And then the Yuda figures out what the problem is, tells you what to do about it, how to regain the balance. And that's it. And so there's a saying there that you go see the doctor or the Yuda, you know, but like the Yuda is equal to the doctor for finding out what's wrong with you. So the Yuda is sort of dealing on the level of energetics. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that a fair way of saying? Yeah, yeah. Very metaphysical. Okay. And there's no school of thought with it, which is what I thought was interesting. There's no like, mm -hmm. this is the, the rituals. Every Yuda listens to what's called her Kamisama, which is like her God voice or spirit voice. And that mm -hmm. voice tells her all the stuff she needs to know. Um, so mm -hmm. in our family, we came over. The Shimanshu were the bottom of the Japanese. Like, they were under the Japanese. Okay. They were kind of, like, really uh, – there's a lot of bias against them as kind of a second-class citizen. And then the Japanese were under the Americans, especially when Pearl Harbor hit. And then if you were Shimanshu and you had all this freaky Yuda stuff going on, you really, really didn't want to talk about it because nobody liked witches. You know, so in my family, it was like a super suppressed thing. Um, but it wasn't a good thing because like my great aunt committed suicide by shoving toothbrushes down her throat. Um, oh my God. Yeah. And I don't know how old she was, uh, but it, the story and, and their stories, you know, so who knows what the truth was and what was really going on. Um, but the story that I have is she had accepted the, the, the Yuda, it's, it's called Kamadari, you know, the whole experience of like you are being broken so that you can be open to this other experience. And she mm. was doing that and then she tried to back out of it or didn't make it through and, you know, committed suicide. And sometimes you don't make it through Kamadari. You know, it is because it's just, you're, you're facing so much suffering. It is, it is. And it's yeah. typically, um, and this actually is the book that I'm working on now is like uh, shamanism in our Western culture, you know, and how we treat I was going to use the word, uh, I was going to use the word shamanism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, yeah. When you said the evoking, tapping into that inner, not even inner voice, but the non-local consciousness from the spirit world. Yeah. I would say they're more shamanistic than witch, you know, but there's not really a Western equivalent, but kind of, you know, like as in it, it's that kind of uh, a process of, of dealing with things. Um, now, when you say you said a moment ago, we were mediums or we are mediums, mm -hmm. does that count for you personally? Have you had those experiences of yes, mediumship? Yeah. And that's oh, actually okay. Um, okay. this book was that's why it kind of changed everything for me, because the Kamadari, you know, happened to me. And, you know, I would okay. hear voices. I've actually uh, don't be scared, but I've been institutionalized twice, you know, for hearing oh, voices okay. and stuff. Um, but well, Al is uh, Al is in an institution now as we're doing the show. Oh, okay. Well, see, thank you. <laughs> I felt very comfortable here. Like this is, yeah, you know, yeah. we are all hearing voices. We're all a little bit yeah. nuts. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I could believe it. I could go on and on. It's in my family too, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to overtake the narrative. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. no, no. Yeah. Well, so these things happened and I would see things that, uh, you know, apparently aren't there, but I mean, since I was okay. a child, child, like I can, one of my first memories is a ghost. Well, I didn't think of him as a ghost then, but his name was Charlie and my dad was terrified of him. And, um, yeah, Charlie, now, as an adult looking back, Charlie was wearing, like, green fatigues, and my dad was from, you know, was in Vietnam, and he had half of his face destroyed, you know, and blood and everything. But as a kid, I didn't recognize that as anything scary. You know, this was my buddy. And the reason why his name was Charlie, I just found out, my mom and I were talking because of this book, um, probably, like, a month or two ago. And she said, and I was asking her about something completely different. Like, do you remember when I asked you about the little brown people with the red hair, you know, and why were they there, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, yeah, kind of. You were a weird kid, though. You're always asking me stuff like that. And then she said, do you remember your invisible friend, Charlie? Oh, wow. And I was like, kind of like, no. And then all of a sudden that sound came back, but it was a radio. And it's like garbled. And it's like, Alpha, Charlie. And Charlie is the only word that comes out. Um, so these are the things where I'm like, you know, I'm not going to argue with somebody that the spirit world is real or not, or, you know, and I think it's, different. oh yeah. Cause it's so, uh, yeah. I mean, it's so tactile to you. There's no debate. Yeah. yeah but, and, and somebody else, this may not be their experience and that's okay. And maybe I am just an absolute lunatic and we're not even here, you know, and I'm just right, well, I'm uh, drooling I mean, on I, myself. I, that's, somewhere. That's where I would, I would only argue against that truly, because it's like, I mean, to dismiss it as you being an absolute lunatic, yeah. even though I know you're being facetious on some level, is, uh, I mean, it, it, um, it, it, like, you know, where I always uh, end up with this, uh, it is okay when anybody believes, just like you said, I'm not here to convert anyone, mm-hmm. but why, why be so beholden to the five senses that that's what you're lobbying for? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, just, yeah, so that, um, but w- when Charlie was in your awareness as a child, what age are you talking about? Or what age was, w- was being, uh, remembered when you were told about this under three like i had to oh be so like real formative two. yeah because we left oh, so you're... that was kentucky and we left there i think when i was three like two or three so so you're just learning how to speak and you're talking about charlie mm-hmm. yeah right okay um and do you still to this day and even the word hearing voices to me is a is, is not a fair way of describing it but are you still tapped into this day oh is absolutely this... Yeah, okay. and it was interesting, though. I lived in all haunted houses when I lived with my parents. And now I kind of feel like Charlie was always there. But later, as I grew okay. up, he was not my friend anymore. And then it was scary. And, you know, that was the things chasing me up the stairs at night and, like, all sorts of things. And that could be a five-hour wow. conversation. Um, but I won't I won't, wow. I won't, won't torch you guys. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, so... You, in the course of being institutionalized, was it a matter of you being so frightened by what you were experiencing that you were like, I need help? Or were there other parties saying, look, what you're talking about is alarming us. Mm-hmm. So you need, you need, what, what, what was the dynamic? Oh, it was definitely other parties. It, it was my parents, honestly. I, I terrified okay. them, you know, because I was constantly seeing things that weren't there. And, and as a, as a, an adult now, and, and now that I've gone through it, it's done. Like, Kamadari is done for me. Now I don't have to, you know what I mean? Like, it's like peace made. Peace has Bruh, been made. you've crossed the bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't have that haunted feeling and all of that. Um, but at the time, like, I just think of that memory of me with Charlie, and Charlie's behind my dad, 
Charlie and I were playing a game. And so I look at this as an adult and I'm like, why did they not burn me alive? Like I might have locked that shit in a mm. fridge or something and, you know, packed it off. <laughs> but like, I don't know. You know what I mean? But I was looking at Charlie and Charlie and I know that my dad is watching. He's watching me. And so I'm just this little kid sitting in front of a window, looking over his shoulder and giggling and then looking at my dad. And looking at Charlie and then looking at my dad. And I'm thinking, wow, that was creepy. I am so sorry. (laughs) And then Charlie was like, he put his fingers up to his lips because we're going to do something even funnier. And then he puts his hand on my dad's shoulder. And I can tell my dad feels it because he turns completely pale and stiffened up. Um, And then I start giggling again because it's hilarious, right? Charlie and I are playing a game. So I'm sorry, dad. Yeah, oh man, I, it, that is so interesting because, and, and I won't start. You want to talk about a five-hour conversation? Yeah. I avoid it also. But uh, <laughs> the um, I have found that ghosts can be very playful and have a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Like that—that's something that movies don't show. I mean, because they go for the fear factor. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times they're there. They're sort of trying to teach us that everything's okay. Like, yeah, you know that there's more, there's more to it. Like, don't take life so seriously. Yeah. Um, and, and they're well, maybe so, bored or whatever. You know. Right. Well, absolutely. Right. Right. So obviously, I mean, this is almost a ridiculous question, but uh, obviously the things you're talking about are your main emotional tie to the horror genre. Probably. I think when okay. I when I started reading horror, it was like probably second grade and I discovered an Alfred Hitchcock uh, Tales of the Very Young. I actually have a copy of that book. It made such an impact of me. I like hunted it down uh, later. Oh, nice. But reading those stories um, was comforting to me because it was like, oh, other people do this. Other people see these things. Uh, this is normal. That's okay. There's a, a realm of experience, you know, that I can, I understand this. I know what is happening in the story. And before that, um, I, I read a lot of nonfiction, actually, like, you know, Ranger Rick magazine and things like that, because mm-hmm. the fiction didn't appeal to me. I mean, it just didn't make sense. Other than like Little House on the Prairie, for some reason, I fixated on those books and read them hundreds of times, probably. But it was the horror genre that explained to me what was going on. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that, that is a really valuable insight in the sense that there are and always have been players within the genre that have uh, offered that perspective where it's not just about scaring the audience, but there's also the uh, sort of inside knowledge of, you know, of spirits or, or, or actual encounters and mm-hmm. just sharing these things. So it's interesting that in, in that dimension of things, the genre can be very comforting. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm always a little surprised still when people associate me with writing something scary because I don't mm-hmm. find any of my work scary at all. Mm-hmm. And so I'll bounce it off my husband. I'll say, you know, like, is this scary? And he'll be like, yeah, yeah, that's really scary. I'm like, okay, okay. Wow. Work for yeah, that, but right, it is right, not scary. <laughs> right. You're right. Because you have a whole uh, balance of light and dark going on that, yeah, it's like you're not, you're not uh, shying away from the darkness. Um, your husband is the handsome, strapping Australian Ryan Aussie Smith. And how does he feel about your mediumship? Where is he at with those sorts of things? He has been so supportive. Um, even at the times when I first, it was probably about five years ago. Um, it, was, it was something that I recognized, but I kind of didn't really pay attention to it. Or I guess probably like my family, I tried to not really bring it up. And then, probably, well, it's probably been about seven years ago now. Um, I started studying chaos magic, like just, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. just kind of studying it like, okay, I think in the future, like 50 years from now, I mean, when you look at what they're doing with um, 
science, like what's coming up in science with uh, physics and stuff. And I'm, I think mm -hmm. I'm not even saying that right, but with dark matter and, you know, you can take an atom and do something, you know, a pair of atoms and, and you can pair them, like marry them, and then you mm -hmm. separate them and one will react in Paris the way for what you've done to one in New York, you know? Right. So right. to me, I'm like, well, that's magic. And I think that kind of started me along that thought of like maybe us the way we feel about magic and metaphysics and stuff um is the, and spirits is the way we used to feel about electricity we just didn't understand right. it. you know right we, we can't quantify it quite yet although yeah yeah and i think are you you mean um do you mean quantum physics is yes thank you yeah oh, God. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah disclaimer I'm i am in no way a scientist or even educated i just read stuff <laughs> And then I no, butcher no, it. No, she's, uh, yeah, a note to the audience, she's selling herself very short. Uh, not to say you are a scientist, but she's a brilliant artist. Oh, but, thank um, you. Absolutely. And, um, okay, so, Al, and I'm, just to triangulate, I'm not trying to start a debate or anything, but I'm curious. Al, are you skeptical? Of? Of uh, meta metaphysics, ghosts, spirits, all these things? Oh, boy. You know, I have a huge <laughs> history in that, right? Because I, oh, okay, okay. I was part of the... Uh, um, that whole paranormal, uh, world for over 10 years. So I, oh, okay. I, so that you don't sound like a skeptic. Okay. I, well, a skeptic, it can be a word I accept. What I, okay. what I, it, cause it's not skeptic isn't like, um, disbelief. It, what it is is it's just, I just want to understand things better and I want to question things. So I don't have the answers. The thing I'm skeptical about is that people, so many people, claim to have these answers and i don't think they do mm -hmm. okay because you, you feel like somebody might come in and say they're getting some canned message from beyond it's like well how could you put any stake in that sort of thing yeah. yeah and there's and there's a whole community that formed you know when you see you see the top of it on television and um and i know most of those guys and and I, all i can say is they all sort of fall into each other's rules and I don't think there are all these set rules that people know. You know, the worst thing in the world for me is seeing a, a television medium tell you what is and isn't mm -hmm. on something that's very un, un, uh, uncontrollable. Yeah, nobody knows, right. really. Right. And I just right. so that I, so I, I'm skeptical on the way people handle it or what they try to make out of it. Right, right. Well, you're more on the questioning end of it, which is interesting because the root of question is quest. So it's more like looking mm -hmm. for answers. Yeah, That's yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm just yeah. not, I, I, I'm into it totally, but I just, I, I think being in it for so long, being in the uh, Canadian Paranormal Society and being in different groups and knowing a lot of it, I just, there's just too many people that uh, claim to know too much. And it turns me off. Mm -hmm. Got it, got it. And Angela, it's so interesting. I think part of the reason on a subterranean level you and I click so well is A, partially to do with what you're talking about, which is absolutely part of my own experience personally. And B, just like you said at the beginning of the conversation, like, you know, politics is a turn off, you know, stay away from talking about politics. Like, there's a coarseness to ideology that's sort of, uh, it's sort of like the dense part of consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I think this and I believe that and you believe this and you think that. It's like it sort of gets very stale when you're communicating that way, yeah. especially if you've experienced more transcendental states of mind. Well, yeah. And, and I think yeah. the important thing that we all need to know, the one thing that we should all know and be certain of, and the only thing is that we don't know. 
you know, right. we don't, well said. I have my perspective. I know what I think now, but hell, I just had that all blown. Like if you'd asked me before the writer's police Academy, how do, how do, um, police can uh, body cams work? Oh, it's a camera. It's like easy. I know what this is. Like, blah, you know, I'll tell you all the, the facts, even though I've never worn one, seen one, been on one, you know, but, and then actually experiencing that, like I knew nothing, you know, right, I would have thought that. So that's the only thing I think is the constant is we don't freaking know <laughs> anything. Yeah, yeah, just to stay open. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just know what uh, we think we know, you know, like that elephant parable where all the blind guys are in a room and they're all feeling the elephant and one feels the trunk. And so he knows what an elephant is based on that. And another guy is the tail. And he's like, yeah, it's totally like this. And we're all perfectly, absolutely 100% certain that we know what an elephant is. And we do. But we're only seeing that one little fraction of an experience. We don't know the whole thing. Right. Um, what Has your mediumship, your experience in this realm, uh, putting aside the fact that uh, early on your parents reacted and they said you need help, these sorts of things, as an adult later in life, has it uh, impacted relationships in any way, like sort of uh, you know, made people fearful or anything like that? Um, I was always the weird one. Okay. So in a way, but I always tried to keep that part of it under wraps, you know, um, sometimes I would, I would let it out. Like I did uh tarot, uh, not tarot readings, um, spirit boards or Ouija in college. Oh, okay. And that's how I got my beer money. Cause I always seem to be able to work it really well. Um, uh-huh. you know, and, and, and that's how, you know, I know special it was to me. It's like, Oh, I can do this thing. <gasps> Free beer. Everybody bring me right, beer right, and right, I will right. read this all night long while we're drinking. And that's also how I learned respect for those things because I haven't touched a Ouija board since because of the last night. Um, I was a, a, you know, young college kid. I know everything that's going on and I have the power and blah, 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 you know, big ego. And, um, just we were with this certain group. Um, and the, the Ouija told us all these super background details that we could never know. Like we were testing it. And that's me as I'm always testing, 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 you know, is this my subconscious? Is this, you know, what could this be? Oh, sure. And so it told a whole bunch of stuff about her that none of us could know, like her kitten when she was four that he gave her, it was saying it was her her grandfather. And then at the end, it started doing this crazy figure eight thing, which I had started to come to recognize as like a, I didn't know, like a negative thing or something bad's going to happen or, you know, uh, and that's usually where I would quit. Like, okay. We're, we're done mm. here. The session is over. This house is clean, whatever I said. Um, mm. And that day I was continuing it because I had this big ego going and I was probably drunk and, you know, who knows. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a good idea. That's all I know about that. And so I started challenging it. And then the last thing it said was she had said and she was like crying. This was so emotional for her. And then she said, um, I said, it has to go. And then she said, um, is there any message? I said one last question. She said, is there anything you'd like me to tell my grandmother? Started doing the crazy eight. And then mm. um, it answered. Oh, my. Ooh, that's, so, scary. that's scary. Yeah. And so then she's like, it, like, and she was a friend of mine. Like, I actually it wasn't somebody I didn't know. So I felt angry that it's acting like that. And it just right. totally upset her. So that's, I think, why I started challenging it. But so I basically, in my drunken ego inflated state, I was saying like, oh, you know, well, that's great. You know, you just made her cry, whatever. 
Um, mm. You know, you're not so great. You know, I bet you can't even like blow out these candles. And it did. And then Ooh, I should have okay. shut up at that point. That's in the horror movie where you're like, shut up. Right, what are right. you? <laughs> An <laughs> idiot? Yes, I was. <laughs> and then I said something else like, you know, oh, wow, well, blowing out candles, big woo-woo, I can do that. You know, it doesn't show that you're powerful or anything. And then, because the, I think it, it had said that afterwards, it was it was all powerful or something, which <laughs> that's where, like, my little bully sister's like, oh, yeah, you think you're so right, powerful? I'm going right. to show you, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to get killed here. Um, <laughs> and it shot the planchette across the room. And so at that point, I think everybody was kind of done, like, no, nah, we're good here. We've seen Who's everything the, we need the, to the say. Planchette? Uh, flew off the board and went across the room. Yeah, it shot wow. across the room and like so violently that it it was under furniture. We had to go dig it back out. Wow. Uh, w- would you say, um, by way of an instructive note or a warning, if it starts doing the figure eight, is that a sign of distress or antagonism? Because to I do the was. board with my uh, for you it was because I do the board with my kids from time to time, and every so often it does start aggressively, mm-hmm. sort of moving in patterns, like it's agitated. Yeah. And, uh, and it's never gone anywhere extreme, but yeah, it is. It does sort of put a chill in the air. Yeah, and, and I would say it, it probably wouldn't go any place extreme, except that I was actually prodding. You know, right, I was being talking. disrespectful, <laughs> and you know. Yeah. And That's the great. last thing it did was cracked all the sink, the enamel off our sink. That was the final thing that I was like, I'm good here. I so feel the like enamel started coming off the sink like air quotes by itself like it just started mm-hmm. wearing away yeah we well we were all sitting on the floor and that was like okay. we retrieved the planchette that was the last thing i was like oh okay whatever you're gonna throw a planchette across the room oh my uh-huh. you're such a you know weakling blah whatever i was saying it was probably terrible i'm so glad there's like no film of this or anything yeah, yeah. and then we're all sitting here waiting and the planchette just stopped cold like it was just gone like there was no more connection right. and we're all sitting here waiting for something else to happen and then we hear this noise and we're in a college dorm room sitting on the floor and we hear this noise. And so we all get up and all of the white part of the sink is just crackling in and there's black metal underneath. Wow. Just, it was just happening like in fast forward, like just right before your eyes. Yeah. Just like that. And I had to pay for that. It was like $700 Ooh. that they oh charged me because they wouldn't believe that I had nothing to do with that. Okay. Which, so in, in yeah. your spirit, and I know you're, uh, it being known that you establish you're more of a question person than, than an answer person. Like, I, I don't want to pin you to this, but in your mm-hmm. spiritual judgment, what sort of entity were you dealing with? Like, like how, would you, how would you quantify or characterize that entity that, you know, was, that was being nasty? I don't know, honestly, because I don't, yeah. I don't know if I believe in, like, say, demons or mm-hmm. I don't believe maybe in classifications. Like, I just don't know. So, so and then also there is the fact that, like you said, that it was it was a confrontation between the two of you. So mm-hmm. by all rights, it might have been an okay entity that was just just felt challenged. Yeah, because right. if we think of us as people, um, you catch me on the wrong day, and I'm like yeah. a really nice, happy person. But you catch me <laughs> at the wrong time, wrong day, and I can be somebody completely different. And so oh, I'm sure. not so sure that maybe all spirits are the same. But it's. You know, they're in an angry day. Now they're a demon or they're feeling throwy that day. Now they're a poltergeist. But it's really the just a spirit. You know, right. if it's not even us somehow, like some kind of, you know, connection in the ether that we're all connected. I just don't know. But wow. I find it a hell of a lot of fun and, and way interesting. But yeah, I, I re- constantly really want to test it. Like I just did a pendulum this weekend in the coffee shop to a group of people and we were just testing it so they could ask questions. And my thing is like, 
watch my arm and say, you know, see, am I manipulating this? Like, if I am, I need to know, like, because that's part of it. I don't right, want to right. believe in something that is not actually happening, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find in terms of working in the medium of poetry that it, uh, because of the way the language can be literary and flavorful and experimental, does that help you draw out or evoke some aspect of the metaphysical that maybe prose can't get to? Absolutely. And, and I'm actually really excited that you asked this because oh, cool. pretty recently in this research of doing all this, um, I came, I was doing a lot of, uh, I'm looking to see if I can find the book on my shelf. I can't, I can't remember the title of it, but it's a scholarly book on uh, Yuda and all of that, you know, in Okinawa, which is why I had it. I think I paid like $80 for this book because it's out of print. Um, but in it, it talks about poetry was the, the utterances of shaman. Like that's oh, where wow. it started. Okay. And it was specifically in the 575 pattern. Okay. Well, as somebody who writes a lot of haiku, I do a lot of chained haiku just naturally. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. He's talking wow. about haiku. Haiku is magic, and it started with the shaman. All poetry, you know, came from here. So it was like a, a very cool kind of connection there. Um, that is amazing. Yeah. yeah. So and yeah. I never thought that. Like, But when I think about it now, after I read that and, and, like, read the book and everything, it makes sense because, you know, boil, boil, toil and trouble. And, you know, poetry mm-hmm. and magic have been hand in hand forever you know right. back to like Shakespeare and beyond right and that makes so much sense just the way you laid that out because there is a sort of like rhythmic metabolic mm-hmm. component like to, to interfacing with spirit there's a sort of rhythm and a feeling and a thrust and a flow of things and then of course mm-hmm. poetry a poetry can sort of like feel like music in that way where it's getting at the uh the unfolding of things mm-hmm. yeah um, and poetry yeah. doesn't deal I mean it can deal in our world but it deals with like a lot of meta um I almost said metaphysics metaphor and impression mm. and you know a smell can mean something else not just that smell you know a right. smell of cookies represents this whole relationship with somebody that used to bake cookies you know what i mean you can pack so much more into a poem than you can um in so few words of course you can pack it in prose too but in just the the fewest words you can express that wow it's and it's really great to be discussing poetry because it's rare i mean it's uh unusual not only for people i think to write poetry i think it's unusual for them uh to publish it or let alone win awards for it mm-hmm. so have you found have you found being professionally engaged in that medium that there uh remains a lot of excitement around it from the writing standpoint and the reader standpoint i think so and right now poetry is having a heyday like like horror has kind of come back mm-hmm. um poetry and, and horror is having a golden age I don't think we've been this popular since the 80s. And mm-hmm, then, that's true. Yeah, and poetry is doing that, too. And I think a lot of it has to do with, like, say, Amanda Gorman. And there's been a couple of, like, best-selling poets recently. Um, and I can't think of oh, none wow. of their names off the top of my head, so I fail. But <laughs> <laughs> Except Amanda Gorman, you know, which, hey, reciting poetry at the Super Bowl. You know, when, when did we ever think oh, that that's, was Oh, yeah, there you happen? go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think she kind of broke it into this mainstream um, and especially poetry appeals, I think, to the underdog um, because it's, again, you can say things without saying them. You can express a truth without being exposed. You know, I can tell you something terrible happened to me and you'll understand it, but I don't have to give you every nitty gritty detail. Right. But you can share that experience with me on a, a basic level that you have your own experiences like that, that you're translating it to. 
you know, so maybe like to me, it was death of a dog. And to you, it's the death of a mother. It's the same pain, you know, and poetically, we can share that. I think her kind of being in that place where first she did the inauguration, she read a poem there. And then she read the poem at the Super Bowl. I think that kind of opened it up for a lot of people to go, oh, damn, poetry. You know, I can express this pain because mm. during 2020, I think we were all underdogs. You know, oh, 2020, sure. 2021, yeah. I think everybody was pretty much feeling beat up. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah. And also, I think the underdog theme is so powerful also in the sense that, to the best of my understanding, and I've written some poetry, but uh, even with things like the 575, in general, there are no rules with poetry, right? Like that's Mm-mm. sort of the idea of it is to flow freely. Yeah. And I think starting out with structure is a good, and that's exactly, that's what I told uh, Genevieve to get her started. I said, find a structure because then you can hang your creativity on it. When you have to come up with the structure and the creative idea, it can be overwhelming. So just mm. find a structure. Now you know the map. Now just fill in where you're going. Like, is it grass or is it rocks? Is it, you know, and I think that that is a really good way to start. And then you start getting more comfortable with this way of thinking and writing. And then you can kind of go off and make your own stuff. I mean, making up your own forms is like hugely fun. Got a a friend and we do a little poetry show uh, twice a month and we're constantly coming up with the most ridiculous ideas of like, this is now a form and we'll name it something. And, you know, for God's sakes, none of these are ever going to go anywhere, but they're a hell of a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. It's also like riffing on the subconscious. It is. Bubbling up here. Yeah. 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 And so with Genevieve, who I love, by the way, she, it was not only her first published poem, it was actually the first poem she wrote. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's okay. what so she that's said. Yeah. So oh, that's why wow. she did the, the limerick when we won, because her husband challenged her. When she started this, she was like at first saying, like, no, I can't do this. I can't write poetry. I've never written anything but a limerick. So that's why she read a limerick for her win, like her speech, um, because her husband said, now you need to write a limerick because, you know, that's where this started with. Wow. Okay. Is poetry, I know we're spending a good amount of time on it. Is that your like main medium is that your preferred mode of expression or do you feel equally passionate about prose um i actually tried to get rid of it (laughs) for a long time okay okay i used to write a lot of poetry and then i went to a high school uh critique group it was the first critique group i ever went to and they tore my poem up and me Mm. so badly oh wow i was like i am never writing another poem. I will never do this. They're horrible. I'm a horrible poet, you know. And so when I did start writing poetry again, it was, I wanted to, and I had these secret poems that nobody would ever see, you know, because it just came out. Um, But I started going to open mics um, in Florida when we lived there. And my excuse was I wanted to get over a fear of speaking, like in public. And I did have a, a fear of speaking in public. Like that's pretty natural, I think. Um, And so I'd write these poems so I would have something to read, but not because I'm a poet or anything. I just have to write these so I have something to perform. You know, it doesn't mean nothing to me. They just just happen to be painstakingly crafted. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, so then the reason why I even published a chapbook of it is because I had a friend who was like 80, and his his thing was he wanted to have a chapbook. And so his wife and I got together, and we self-published his poetry as a surprise for him. Um, you know, very, he had no idea it was happening, but since I had everything laid out, like, cause I had to build the template and everything for oh, this yeah. chat book, I was like, oh, when it was my birthday, like the next week, 
I was like, you know what? For my birthday, I will throw all the scrappy poems mm. in a chat book and then I'll be done with it. And nobody's ever going to read it. Nobody will ever know. Nobody knows who I am. It's safe. And then it got an Elgin nomination. Oh, and nice. Yeah. I was kind of like, oh my gosh, probably up and even until like two years ago, I would tell my husband sometimes, especially when I'm tired, I'd be like, why does everybody keep calling me a poet? You know, like, <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah. because you have like four poetry books written by this point, you know, yada, yada. And you know, I go, I, I guess I can see that, but it was like a real, you know, but it's still from that. That's why I'm like, don't judge other people's works for God's sakes, because this is, it is all, you may not like it. It doesn't mean it's bad, but look at the damage you can do, you mm. know. It's interesting. It was like the universe was willing you in that direction because you did the chapbook for your friend. You had the mm -hmm. template available to you. It's like, okay, now this is like easy. I have all these poems adding up. It's like all the pieces were being assembled. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I remember kind of going, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. And it was like, it's illogical not to do that. Like, right, why right. You do this? You, it's you like know. a cup waiting to be filled. It's like, yeah, why would you not? Yeah, scratch yeah. Hey, listen, um, we we got to get to your, so how do people find you? Like website, social media, oh, phone yeah. number, address, like what do you like to give out? Uh, pretty much my website is AngelaYSmith.com or just my name, AngelaEurekoSmith.com. And everything kind of goes out of there. I try to keep it updated. Um, I try to keep all the links there and what I'm, so, I don't, I say try. It's usually a little up, out, outdated, but. You know, I try. That is the best place to reach me. And there's a contact form and everything there. Perfect. And you've got the new uh, tribute to Anne Rice out too, right? What, what's that yes. about quickly? Yeah, that is uh, Rebecca Rowland and Elaine Pascal came to me after Anne Rice had passed away. And, of course, we were all, you know, very emotionally shook. And they said they wanted to do an anthology. And would I be willing to publish it through Eureka Publishing, which is a little boutique publishing company that I have, primarily for Space and Time magazine to house that. Mm. But I also like we publish Tortured Willows with this. Things that are not uh, financially viable, I publish through Eureka Publishing. Um, and so they asked me if I would publish it. I did. I believe there's 19 writers in there. And I have a story, too. And gorgeous book. All the writers did such a good job. Uh, Jeanette Andromeda, I think is her name, did the art. Beautiful. Nobody got paid anything for it. And I mean, other than contributor copies. And all the money is going to the Animal Rescue of New Orleans, or Arno. 100% uh, of that in Anne Rice's name, uh, because she was so into, like, cats and rescues and stuff. So we're, that's where all the money is going. But that has been really fun project. And, and an emotionally cathartic, you know, kind of. Anne Rice was kind of like a fictional mom, I guess. I probably really looked at her as, like, that kind of figure in my life, so... It was good to be able to kind of do something instead of just mourn her. Oh, fantastic. Well, we're wrapping up the show. We're glad you came on, and we'll have so. everything up on our website. Our guest today has been Angela Eureko-Smith. Thank you for being on the show. A pleasure. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.